hivfm.org. This is Health is a Human Right radio show. Protecting people like yourself. I have some news for you. We're here to defend wealth. I have some news for you. We're here to defend wealth. Tra la la la. Hey ho, let's go. This is 102.3 WHIV LPFM. This is Nola Matters, and this is Health is a Human Right. My name is Dr. Mark Allen Derry, and we are going to just jump right into Nola Matters before we uh, start our daily uh, activities here. Uh, I just first want to make sure that Dr. Cheever, if you can hear me on the phone. Yes, I can hear you just fine. Thanks. That's great. So, uh, Dr. Cheever, uh, am I pronouncing it correctly? Is it Cheever? Cheever, I'm sorry. Do- Dr. Cheever? Uh, Dr. Cheever is an associate administrator of the HIV AIDS Bureau of Health Resources. Are you still there? Yes, I'm, I'm here. Can you, can you hear me? Do- Dr. Cheever, Hello. I think we are having some technical difficulties. Can you hear me? Hello. Um, Dr. Shiver, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Okay, I can hear. I can hear you now. I couldn't hear you a minute ago. Got it. So I think we're back in touch. Great. Awesome. So Dr. Cheever is a associate administrator of the HIV AIDS Bureau at Health Resources and Service Administration, HRSA, where she provides leadership and technical expertise in the administration of the Ryan White HIV AIDS program and in the HRSA's global HIV AIDS program. And this is especially exciting for me to talk to you, Dr. Cheever, because I uh, have a uh, Ryan White Part A grant uh, in New Orleans, as well as a Ryan White Part F grant with the uh, AETC at Access Health. I'm the director of both of those. So it's, ex- it's exceedingly exciting for me to be able to talk with you. So on April 10th, uh, the uh, Ryan White HAP program will commemorate the annual observance of National Youth and HIV Awareness Day. It is an opportunity to increase awareness of care and treatment services for this critical population facing HIV-related health disparities and barriers to achieve viral suppression. In 2017, approximately 87% of young uh, adult uh, uh, adults, uh, Ryan White clients, um, were from racial or eth- uh, ethnic minority populations, and nearly 71% lived uh, at or below the federal poverty level. Dr. Cheever, this is uh, 102.3 WHIV, so this is a radio station that I actually started as an HIV physician, partly to talk about things uh, having to do with HIV, so it really is an honor to have you uh, on air to talk about uh, some, of these, uh, some of these things, but particularly National Youth and HIV Awareness Day. 
Well, thank you so much for having me and for the work that you're doing in the community. I think the Ryan White HIV AIDS program is incredibly effective, but it's because we have people in the community doing the work that know how to do the work in the communities uh, where they are. Well, thank you so very much. I do appreciate it. And it's under your leadership we're able to get this done. Can you talk to us a bit about what's happening on April 10th? Yes. Yeah, so as you said, April 10th does mark the annual observance of National Youth HIV and AIDS Awareness Day. And we take time out at this time of year to really focus on HIV and its impact in youth. I think there are a few important things that we need to know. The first thing is that um, in the United States, around 21% of all new HIV diagnoses were among youth. So uh, definitely a group that we need to be worried about and, and thinking about. And particularly um, of all the diagnoses among youth, over 80% were among uh, young men who have sex with men. So um, in... I think we may have lost Dr. Cheever medication every day to eliminate the risk of, of acquiring HIV. So that is, um, we call that PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, and that really is not reaching the communities it, reach, it needs to reach. And we can see that when we look particularly at the data around youth, and particularly around youth of color, both uh, black men and, and Hispanic men. Um, so we need to be doing a better job here. That's the first thing. The second piece is when it comes to care and treatment, the great news about HIV today is if someone does get HIV, and we need to prevent those infections, but for people that do, do get HIV, if they start on medication, which right now is usually for most people, one pill once a day, they can live a near-normal lifespan and have um, effectively no risk of transmitting HIV to someone else. So if someone is infected, it's important that they find out they're infected, and that's by getting tested. And then once, they're, once if they find out they're HIV positive, to get into treatment. Um, and we know that people uh, are used living with HIV are not getting into treatment at the same rate as, as older adults. So we need to make sure that, that the word is out there. And I think what you were describing a moment ago, and maybe you can kind of walk us through this, because this is something that we talk a lot about on WHIV, but I think you were just kind of hinting a bit about something that we now refer to as U equals U, which is undetectable equals untransmittable. Uh, Dr. Cheever, can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, so um, in this country, we really, uh, I really do believe that we have the tools available today to end the HIV epidemic in this country, and uh, we can do that. And one of the key pieces of that is our understanding now that for someone who has HIV infection, if they take medication and they're virally suppressed, which means they're taking medication regularly and it's working well for them, that they have effectively no risk of transmitting HIV to someone else. So it's like a liberating event for a person living with HIV. Uh, the important thing is they need to take medication uh, they need to be taking the medication every day. In this country, we're fortunate to have the Ryan White HIV AIDS program, which means that a person living with HIV, regardless of their income, regardless of their insurance, and this is important for young people who are, have a much higher rate of being uninsured, but regardless of your ability to pay for medication, we can help you access medication and medical care in the Ryan White program. And patients that come into the Ryan White program and are seen at least once, 86%, so 86 out of 100 of those patients will achieve an undetectable viral load. So we can help people have success with their HIV treatment. In the program, and I know you know this because you're a, you're a grantee, but in 
in our program, people, in addition to getting things like medical care, which is important, and access to medications, which is important, also can get things like assistance with transportation to their medical appointments or assistance with housing or food or other things that they need to help them engage uh, to and and be retained in care. And that's particularly important for young people who are often, those people living with HIV that are young are often living at those margins. And so they need that extra assistance and we can provide it in the program. Yeah, it's uh, I I you know, I I've been uh doing the um and been managing uh, Ryan White programs now for uh going a little bit beyond 10 years and and the programming that it offers is really something that's quite amazing and uh and I am very proud to be a part of the Ryan White uh program and uh and I and I agree 100% with you uh, uh that uh we we need to be doing a better job with prep and you know we've seen the CDC data that shows that when you're looking at communities of color we're uh, uh, individuals that should be on prep uh, or that qualified to be on prep, uh, we're seeing uh, very very small numbers, and I think that uh, we all, myself included, and certainly we're trying to do this within the city here in New Orleans, are trying to get as many folks on prep uh, as possible. And certainly, one of the greatest destigmatizing uh, um, uh, messaging, uh, you know, it was funny. I was over the weekend talking about how how doctorly treatment as prevention sounded and it, it sounded made sense to me but it wasn't until you know uh, bruce richmond of course came up with uh and started we started to kind of talk about u equals you how much uh, how clever and uh, what a simple message that is and how incredibly empowering that message of u equals you has become and, and it's something that i think that not only have have we embraced but it's great to see a global embracement of you equals you as well, as I think it's not only an incredibly empowering message, uh, but I think it's one that also, uh, as you mentioned, will help us get to a uh, uh, an HIV-free uh, uh, generation uh, as long as we get everybody tested and then ultimately treated. Absolutely. And, and one of the important things when we focus on youth is that one out of every two young people living with HIV uh, between the ages of 13 and 24 doesn't know that they're infected. And that's, that's remarkably high. Across the board in the country, it's about 15% of people that, are in, that have HIV uh, don't know they have it, but among youth, it's 50%. So really, young people need to know that if, if they've had sex or if they've injected drugs, they're at risk for HIV, and so they should be getting an HIV test, um, and it's and it's not the sort of the death sentence it used to be. So that um, if they if someone tests is at risk and they test HIV positive, they can be put on medication and live a near normal lifespan. And if they test HIV negative and are at risk, they can get started on prep. So um, I understand there are big issues around stigma, um, but there um, but it is definitely important that people are getting tested because uh, the consequence of not getting tested is getting very, very sick with HIV and potentially dying of it. And there's no reason that that needs to happen. Yes. And, and to be clear, some of the statistics here in Louisiana, just so that, that, that you're aware, we, uh, uh, we were one in five, but now have moved into, I'm sorry, we were one in four, but now we're one in five. So about 20% of those people living with HIV in Louisiana are unaware of their, uh, of their diagnosis. And, uh, and often, as we say, Louisiana tends to not necessarily always be on the top of the good list. And this is one where we're definitely not. Louisiana has the highest rates of, of adolescents 
adolescent HIV, at least in 2017, we had the highest rate of, of HIV in, in the ages between 13 and 24. So in, in our state, we certainly have a lot of work to do. And, and again, as I had mentioned, you know, uh, the uh, it keeps the Part A uh, grant <laughs> busy, of course, and of course, as it does the, the Part F uh, uh, grant as well. So... But I did want to say thank you so very much. And I would love to have you on air anytime uh, uh, for any of the other uh, HIV awareness days that, that, that are coming up. Uh, the, the, this would be a great opportunity to sit and, and talk with a national expert such as yourself. Great. Well, thanks so much. We'll definitely take you, back, uh, take you up on that invitation to come back again. Thanks so much for uh, having me with you today. Thank you so much. Dr. Uh, Laura Cheever is the Physician and Associate Administrator for the HIV AIDS Bureau of the Health Resources and Services Administration. On April 10th, uh, the Ryan White HIV and AIDS Program will commemorate the annual observance of the National Youth HIV and AIDS Awareness Day. Thank you so very much, Dr. Cheever, and I do look forward to, uh, to uh, chatting with you again at some point in the near future. And with that, uh, let us move uh, the uh, show over. Uh, if you're tuned in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIV. It was really an honor and a pleasure to have on air with us Dr. Laura Cheever, uh, who uh, runs basically HRSA, uh, certainly the HIV AIDS uh, Bureau, uh, which is the uh, Health Resources and Services Administration, and talked to a national expert about uh, PrEP and, uh, and um, U equals U. So uh, at this point, let me just turn the microphone over. Uh, to uh, one of the people I admire most in this world, uh, Mr. A.J. Strong. Oh, my goodness. And what a beautiful intro. Thank yes. you, Mark Allen. Uh, and uh, it's I, I had a rough day today, so I look over and I see all three of your smiling faces, and I am so deeply appreciative of the opportunity to do what we're about to do. So I'm going to kick the show over to you and let you just kind of run for a second, and I'm going to do a couple things sure, I need to do here. Sure, no problem. Uh, my name is A.J. Strong. I'm the co-host here with Dr. Mark Allen Derry uh, for this edition of NOLA Matters in the house this afternoon. We have once again, <laughs> for the third consecutive I'm time, back. Claire Prevot. <laughs> and with them today is their yoga partner, business partner. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Collaborator. Sarah Morrison. Yes. Hi. So the last two editions of this show we well the first one we did actually a pretty good job we were talking about um trauma-informed yoga is that how you preferred to say that i feel like either i said that and you corrected me or that was what we settled on i feel like that's like a perfect lead-in to some of the things that we want to talk about today actually so thank you for asking that um so Claire has been using the term healing focus yoga for the kind of yoga that we've been practicing together. Um, and we've talked a lot about why that is. And I think one of the main things is that people may or may not identify as someone who's experienced trauma. Mm -hmm. um, and we also want people to know that you don't have to identify as having been traumatized in order to benefit from healing practices, including healing focus yoga. And we also just don't want to center trauma because it's not necessarily all about the worst things that have happened to you. It's really about giving people the power to heal from some of those things. Sure. And I don't know if I'm often saying this, but I think if you're alive today, the chances are you've probably experienced some sort of trauma. So Indeed. everyone can come to the table and find some sort of healing in some capacity. Yeah. I like that. Healing informed trauma. 
That's great. All right. So last month when Claire was on, we went off on a gender bender, if you will. <laughs> it was necessary. It was necessary and it was informative and it was really fun. Don't tempt me again. Yeah. Don't, don't tempt <laughs> us, us with a good time. Um, but we, we are going to steer clear of that. And yes, sir. And talk about. <laughs> I see what I did. Um, I see what you did there. <laughs> yep. We're going to talk about um, healing informed yoga, and we also have. Uh, well, what was fun the first time we did, we kind of had a little back and forth between yes. Claire and Mark Allen with the yoga, the language used in yoga, and what it means and represents. And then Dr. Mark Allen Derry would chime in with his medical expertise Boo. <laughs> western medicine yeah yeah it's re- really yeah it was kind of like an east versus west <laughs> what uh myths and facts and um and it was just really fun so right. i want to give these two a chance to yes, talk about please. more in depth what they yes. do and then maybe we could have a little bit of that banter towards the end so i'll hand it over to claire and sarah we're, we're both kind they're, of, they're I flipping. just want to fill everyone now. They're currently we flipping keep a coin. We gesturing to each other, trying to give each other an opportunity to speak. <laughs> so there might be a lot of that. Apologies in advance. Yeah. Um, yeah. Should we start off with like how this partnership came to be? I feel yes, like that's please. a good grounding for this conversation. Um, so Claire's expertise, and um, they can definitely tell you way more about this than I can, but Claire's expertise is in the trauma science area. Um, and when I came to find out about the program, I was really interested in how we decolonize our understanding of trauma so that this programming would be a truly healing space and create people who could go out and create more healing spaces um, with an anti-racist lens in mind. Um, And the reason that we don't see those as separate things or conflicting things is so much of the trauma that people experience in the world, but also in the United States, is really rooted in white supremacy. Um, And to be clear, that's not just black and brown folks who are traumatized by white supremacy. Um, so I won't get into it cause it's depressing, but there's pretty much, I can link that back to pretty much every form of trauma that people experience, inclu- including gendered violence, um, historically and currently. So it felt really, really necessary that any sort of space that we were having to talk about trauma started with a really more true and more expansive view of what trauma is, where it comes from and how people experience it. So that when we're talking about how to move through that and help people create spaces that are trauma informed or healing focused, as we call it, um, that it was really grounded in this being a space that could be healing for everyone. Um, not just people who we traditionally see as being the victims of trauma, which is of course informed by white supremacy. And we often tend to think of like, white women as being the victims of trauma um, pretty much exclusively. So we wanted to kind of decolonize our thinking about that to begin with um, and form the foundation of our program around that. Yeah. Yes. Thanks. Um, Yeah. So even in the development of this curriculum for this training that we wanted to offer, it was challenging to find resources that we could teach from without having to constantly bring in something or a voice that was missing. Mm -hmm. from the material um and a lot of the different uh trauma informed yoga approaches books trainings that are out there typically just refer to incidental trauma which is uh just one experience 
um, that you've survived, that now has an effect on your nervous system and so many other just different parts of who you are. But we really wanted to get at how trauma is not experienced in a vacuum. It's mm-hmm. in the context of what you go through every single day and all the different intersecting identities that you carry in your body. And so really we were trying to get at this approach that would meet people where they're at and really acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And if this is sounding a little woo to anyone, let's ground it in some science. So literally we're at the point of scientists are understanding that um, generational trauma is not only real in that how we experience relationships and everything like that, but on a cellular level, um, trauma is actually passed down. So it, Again, in thinking about uh, decolonizing our understanding of what trauma is and who is impacted by it, it was really important that we expand that beyond what Claire is talking about with an incidental trauma and um, really help people see that this is something that happens on a regular basis, something that could have happened in your family history. Um, And to your point, AJ, that most of us alive right now have had some experience with trauma, and I believe all of us could benefit from um, better more inclusive healing spaces to deal with that. Mm. What do you think about that, Mark Allen? What Sarah just said about... I shouldn't didn't use the right whatever. No, no. There's no right or wrong. It's uh, just a a healthy conversation. Not a debate, but a conversation. Yeah, a a debate is fine, but there's nothing to debate here because I think everything that you said was completely true. I I agree with you. And you said it so eloquently in a way that I've never been able to quite I can kind of wrap my head around it, but not my words around it. But I 100% agree with you, of course, that white supremacy is very likely to be the basis of almost all trauma, if not is the basis of all trauma. Because if you look at every root, every weed, every seed, every element that exists, certainly in this culture as well as so many other cultures globally, I, I, I can't help but... 100% 100% agree with you. And, you and and so what you got me thinking when you made that comment was I was just thinking about something like Fox News and I'm not going to necessarily pick on when I think about it, the media, but when you look at mainstream media and just Fox News is the extreme example, but I can use any CNN, MSNBC, any of the, the so-called mainstream medias, they are doing nothing per- per- perpetuating these myths or the, because the, the white, white supremacy... I wish it would be dead already, right? When When is that last gasp going to finally be breathed? I keep hearing about this last gasp, but right now I, I'm not, I'm seeing... I, I think when white people start to shift their power in more substantial yes. ways. And something like, ma- the, and, and that is such a great point because mainstream media is not allowing that to happen. And that was why I started WHIV, was to have conversations like this that are just not heard anywhere else. So long-winded way to say wow that was really beautiful what you just said what what do you think about uh the part that sarah said about trauma being passed down through generations on a cellular level yeah so that's that's a great point so that's called i know the science is right how i explained it right so no no so can you talk to us about that so that's something referred to as epigenetics and epigenetics is this incredibly powerful field of science, which is looking at the uh, the genetics. So we understand that structural racism uh, and structural poverty 
and structural violence, for that matter, all go hand in hand, right? And for me, the field that I focus in on is medicine and how structural uh, violence, structural uh, poverty, uh, and structural racism and how that is perpetuated generation after generation, but from a medical perspective. That's my personal as a doctor, right? But when you take a big, big step back, that also exists in society, back to what you were saying, which is this is a function of white supremacy, right? And white supremacy having everything to do with all elements of our lives. And I promise you, I'm going to shut up now. Don't ask me another question, AJ, because <laughs> I feel like a white supremacist talking right now, right? <laughs> like, and I'm trying not to use my, my white male privilege, but let me just end with this, that the whole idea of epigenetics is incredibly fascinating because when you take the structural out, of the gener- of how things are passed on, what you're looking at is the genetics. So it's not necessarily structural. Yes, structural has a huge part to do with it because the infrastructure somebody comes up in is incredibly important and predictive. It's to what life that they they may live. Let's say, right? If you're born into poverty, you're very likely going to stay in poverty. But when you look at it from a genetics level, there's no explaining. That's not structural. That's deeply wound into your genetics and I would love to hear your thoughts and I promise you I'm here. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um yeah, yes. Yes. In short, yes. I think like um what you were speaking to in terms of the role that the media plays in all of this, like that's all we could have a whole podcast just on that, so yes. I won't go down that road. But <laughs> okay. I think, like, I think we – there you go. That's next time we come back. Um, I think part of what you're speaking to is, like, we have these really entrenched, dominant cultural narratives mm. of who is a quote-unquote victim and who is a quote-unquote perpetrator um, that are deeply racist, that are um, – also I think deeply unexamined so that comes up all of the time in media but that also comes up all of the time in our imaginations and how we conceive of events how we conceive of um yeah of issues of guilt of issues of who um who is deserving of healing from events mm-hmm. so that is something that we tried to touch on a lot in the class I mean there was a lot of things going on so we just kind of scraped the surface on that but I think it's important for us to to be in a place of drawing out what some of those dominant narratives are so that we can look at them and understand where they come from and really start to challenge them. Um, one of those dominant narratives is that violence is enacted upon white bodies by black bodies. That's a dominant cultural narrative that we have that shows up all of the time. I don't think I need to tell anyone in the room or anyone listening that. I think that that's very obvious to us. And I think what's less obvious to us is the ways that that impacts our understanding of things like trauma. Um, And I think that that gets to having this really narrow lens of who is traumatized. Um, And that shows up in all sorts of ways. I'm sure you can speak to how that shows up in the medical field. Um, I work in education that absolutely shows up in how we treat children who are misbehaving Mm -hmm. um, and where we think the roots of that misbehavior is coming from. Um, And often a lot of that is deeply racialized. So this is something that I think is, you know, uh, we're going to have to, to your question of like, when does white supremacy die of? That's another whole podcast. Mm -hmm. But I think think like one of the things is like we have to have – we have to have some really like real talks with ourselves as individuals and as a society about where these stories are coming from, the ways that they don't serve us and how we kill them. Yeah. 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 I uh, complete agree. Um, and it's so much to fit into 
a curriculum, yes. you know? And so, um, but so necessary. And so something that I really appreciated, Sarah, that you helped do for during the training was um, Sarah wrote all these really wonderful reflection questions that we would go through and process together that would help all of these teachers in training, like really investigate those narratives from their own perspective and how specifically it might show up um, for each of them based on the community that they had chosen to focus on to serve by facilitating yoga and mindfulness. So um, we tried to investigate those things and give people the tools to continue to investigate it on their own at the mm-hmm. end of the training. Um, but it's a lot. And you really mm-hmm. have to hold yourself accountable to continue to do that difficult work if you want to hold space Mm-hmm. for healing for others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yes. and to your point about that generational trauma, I can, can, I can talk about it from the cognitive behavioral perspective. Um, so, um, you know, these, these beliefs, these narratives that we get grown up in, not only do the epigenetics affect the ways in which the genetics that we inherit from our, um, ancestors, ancestors then might get triggered to manifest or not. Um, we also, are the product of the psychological well-being of our caregivers. Mm-hmm. Um, we learn how to regulate our nervous system based mm-hmm. on the nervous system of our caregivers who were also immersed, immersed in this culture, mm-hmm. you know, who were affected by it. And the beliefs that we carry into adulthood were formed when we were children, and they reflect a whole lot more about our environment than really ourselves. So we carry these beliefs, and these beliefs then affect how we cope with trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, a belief like, I'm not worth taking care of, taking care of, or I'm worthless, those kinds of things can get internalized and then reinforced by this oppressive society that we are in Mm -hmm. and then make it very, very, very challenging for us to heal from trauma. And so we have to create healing spaces using things like mindfulness to give people the tools to really observe those kinds of thoughts and feelings when they come up and choose whether they want to continue to buy into them or choose to relate to them differently. And that can be so, so hard. Mm-hmm. And so that, that piece of just being present, observing and anchoring yourself in gentleness and self-compassion has, I think is really core cool at the core of what we do. Yes. Oh, Claire, I'm so excited we get to work together. I'm like, Me too. Yes, yes to all of that. Yes. <laughs> um, and one thing that that brought up um, for me that I would be remiss to leave this room without saying is I think another challenge on top of this is it's a very unique how do I want to put this? It's a very like unique kind of pain to be suffering and to have your suffering erased. So I think yes. that's also a function of white supremacy in that we tell people that happened to your people so long ago. Why are you still angry about it? That was an isolated incident. It's a few bad apples, all of that kind of stuff. So when you layer on um, what we've talked about with generational trauma, with the trauma of being, for example, in a black or brown body every day in this country, you, you really start to add up um, – it really does add up for people. And on top of that, you are often told that you need to in some way prove that these things are happening to you. Mm. And that's like another burden that we put on black and brown folks. Um, prove that you are traumatized by seeing your people killed on the news every day. Sure. Um, prove that that's not an isolated incident. So right. we really wanted to be cognizant of not putting people in a position to say, come to this space that is going to be healing for you that has not thought deeply about what you need to heal from and what you are dealing with on a day-to-day basis. It felt really important that whatever spaces we created, um, but also worked with people to help co-create 
on their own, in their own communities, that that was really an acknowledgement. What are people actually going through? And that is why we spent so much time thinking about how do we decolonize our understanding of trauma. It's not because trauma is super fun, and it's not because we want to center trauma in our discussions of healing, but it felt like we would be remiss not to really complicate that understanding so that we could meet people where they're actually at. Mm. Yeah. Can I, uh, sure. Sorry. Let me let me just say, if you're tuned in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIV LPFM. This is Noel Matters Health is a Human Right. I'm with AJ Strong, clearly one of my, easily one of my favorite people in the whole world. And I see you smiling across. Dang. The, <laughs> I see you smiling. Uh, and right now, uh, AJ and I are just sitting in complete silence, both of us smiling, listening to these two <laughs> amazing people. I am in awe. And Claire my mind is actually and Sarah, blown right now. Yeah, uh, talking about some amazing things. And, and, and I'm going to turn the microphone back over to you guys again in a second. We just needed to do a midway kind of station ID. Um, but I, I will say this, and, 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 I, and I think I've, you know, I, I am very honest uh, in saying that I, I started WHIV uh, and, um, and continued to run the station, uh, difficult as it may be, you know, on a, on a shoestring. Uh, but, to have conversations like this because there is no other conversations that the conversations that are out there, certainly on public airwaves. I mean, we're, I think podcasting is certainly becoming a way of people being able to communicate with each other. So when we got started, it wasn't the case, but in terms of public airwaves, just having conversations and hearing because the way that, that white supremacy is going to end, that last gasp is finally going to be taken when there's more and more conversations like this that are had. Uh, and, and, and people like myself are able to shift the societal power over so that it's more equitably uh, contained within society. And one of the premier things at WHIV is one of our major missions is social, economic, environmental, and racial justice. And it's the work that you guys are doing particularly that gets society to that. And I'm saying that completely and totally honestly. And I can't wait to have you guys back already for all the other shows that you're promising us. So I'm going to turn the microphone back over to you guys. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I would... I would further that just by saying if you're out there listening and you would like to continue listening to shows like this, you should definitely consider going to the website whavfm.org and clicking on the donate button. Help us help us keep this thing afloat. Um, you can also click on the store and buy a fancy T-shirt, and that helps us stay afloat as well. Um, my mind is blown right now. I'm hung up on... What you said, Claire, about um, the psychological aspect of it and the I'm thinking about all the ways in which I move through the world carrying around my caregiver's um, baggage. Mm -hmm. And then as a parent myself, I'm like, oh, my God, what am I doing to the children? You know, like try. <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> you know. I I want I'd like to think that I've done my best. I I think so. You know, but yeah. it, it's like, oh my goodness, are are my kids in the future going to be sitting, talking with their peers, going, yeah, man, I'm just carrying around the baggage of my <laughs> from my from my stepdad, just really put it on me, you know. I find that really hard to imagine mm. after having met one of your stepkids. Mm -hmm. Really hard. But, yeah, and I find it hard to imagine, given how concerned you are. 
about that. I find it hard to imagine just given True. your level of concern about that. Uh, well, you know, it's a terrifying thing being a parent because, you know, you, you, you love them and then you're also like, oh, my God, I hope I don't screw you up because it's <laughs> not like messing up a pancake. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're cooking pancakes and you flip it and you're like, oh, not at all like that. Yeah. Well, I, I think that um, I hear this often, you know, I don't, I don't, in my practice, I don't work with uh, children or families, but um, I mostly just work with adults, but I do hear this kind of fear sometimes about like, no matter what I do, my kids or even sometimes future kids are going to be messed up. Yeah. Um, and yes and no. You know, like, I want to, I guess I'm trying to comfort you with a little reality check here that, like, yeah, I appreciate it. we all are gonna, we all have within us those, like, negative and positive beliefs that are maybe mm-hmm. adaptable at some point in our lives, and then we hold on to them mm-hmm. when they're not as relevant anymore, and everyone has those, mm-hmm. and also, human beings are resilient, mm-hmm. and I can't curse, but I would say, how resilient I'm picking up what you're putting yes. down. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, so I just think that, you know, whenever you're being mindful of the way you're co-parenting, mm-hmm. you know, you're really setting them up and then they also have their own tools and ways of navigating what you give them. Sure. You know? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for that. I appreciate that. Yeah. Anytime. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And then going back to what Sarah was saying, the most recent part of it, I, I was thinking of this concept of what I've heard people use this term a lot. They call it the race card mm. where people of color. It, it's my favorite card. Y- y- <laughs> <laughs> it, it, <laughs> and you know what? Yeah. It's always applicable. If we bring it up all the time, it's because it's always relevant. Right. But but that the, the idea of that is really kind of taking away from or it's it's white people who are refusing a lot of times they can't see the oppression because it's not happening to them Mm -hmm. but then when someone brings it up to them they don't want to hear it because that would mean they would have to maybe give up something that's that they're comfortable in or change their ways and that can be really challenging for people so instead they just chalk it up to that person of color playing the quote unquote race card Mm -hmm. Um, that's just something that came to my mind when you were speaking last. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For sure. Um, that's... I had the, the opportunity to go hear a talk with some of the graduates from our training, oh, yeah. actually, yeah. uh, uh, from Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams recently on, um, these, all these just white supremacy, race, uh, liberation from a Buddhist standpoint. And, uh, one of the things that really, uh, I, w- I hope to carry with me and remember is we're talking a lot about how white supremacy affects, Uh, black, indigenous, and people of color, Mm -hmm. but also white people are Mm -hmm. severely, seriously harmed by white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Um, Reverend Angel was talking about how the legacy that we have inherited in our bodies of feeling disconnected and even at times dissociated from our bodies because if our ancestors, if white people's ancestors had listened to their bodies and allowed themselves to even, even a little bit feel how they were feeling, can you imagine that they would have let a, like things like slavery happen? Mm-hmm. You know, so it's almost like we also have been severely harmed as white people, and one of the legacies of that is being very disconnected from our bodies. Right, right. Um, and part of healing is tuning back in and feeling all of that discomfort, because then it motivates you to act differently mm-hmm. than your ancestors did. Yeah, yeah. I've also heard it put as. Um, 
white supremacy also right it definitely robs black and brown folks of their humanity but it also robs white folks of their humanity so yeah. yes yeah mm-hmm Sure. Can we can we talk a little? One thing I was really hoping we could talk about is yeah. just how healing focused yoga might be different than a typical yoga yes. practice. Yes. Sure. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Let's do that. Please. Just two, two things. Yeah. Like one is um, what would uh, when we have you guys back on again, I would love to have I would love to have some of your thoughtful and reflection questions. I think those would be a great basis for a show as well to have um, you know AJ and I. Uh, um, just to maybe ask those questions and then just kind of talk about them. I think that would form a really good basis uh, for a show. So that was first thought. Sure. Yeah. And then the second thought was it, it you kind of reminded me, Claire, what you were talking about, about being uncomfortable in our bodies um, and how in the the American existence has been to not worry about anything except for either convenience Right. You know, single use this, that or whatever. You look back in the 50s and, you know, there was this big revolution of like, oh, you could do this now, you know, like, you know, focused on like, let's say housewives or, you know, but it was always based on like convenience or, you know, just no regard for society or for long term environmental you know, it, it, anything that would inconvenience the American consumer, you know, is anything that would be necessarily, quote unquote, bad for business um, or inconvenience the consumer. But the thing that really kind of triggered, and I'm not sure if you guys remember this or not, but after 9-11, I don't know if you remember what George H.W. Bush, like, rather than like, you know, here's something for you guys to all feel better. And he he literally, the government, like, sent out like $300 and $350 checks to every person to go shopping yeah i remember that right don't don't feel like i don't does that resonate with you guys i mean i'm not laughing because it's funny i'm just like what a fix what a fix right i mean that's it it, it's like anything that like i mean you're i'm so just relating with what you're saying claire that that we are in a society the american culture has been one of which under no under you know no way can we uh let me give you an example for example the city of new orleans is only and 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 i think that we need to not stop at the italians but they're they're now going to be giving some sort of like apology the mayor is going to give an apology and vincenzo pasquantonio who uh for for a big lynching of like 18 italian folks was like the biggest italian lynching right i'm i'm with you i'm, I'm with you i'm with you on that uh uh but like that sort of it's take strong faces right it's taken this long out to curse on the show right no you are not allowed it but it's it's a step but it's taken this long and of course when you're talking about reparations toward african-american people i mean we're only just just hearing the starts of it right now but by reparations you know when i'm hearing people talk about we're like talking about a serious like education, employment. I mean, this is not just a check of a thousand dollars. This is like real societal uplifting and changing so that there really is for once a true equitable society, but that's going to inconvenience white people, right? It's going to make them feel awkward or bad or what have you. So I, 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 I'm, I just, I guess this is a very long winded way of just saying I a hundred percent agree with you. And I just kind of wanted to just kind of share that with you. But I, I didn't want to take away from what you were saying, uh, Sarah, because I know we were about to change direction. So I just wanted to just yeah. just relate with what you were saying. Yeah. Um, 
So a couple things just occurred to me. One is that we're on the radio and y'all can't see me. Um, <laughs> so I am a biracial black woman. Hi. Um, <laughs> thought I should just name that for the sake of this conversation and where I'm coming from in this conversation. Um, yeah. So that's one thing. Two, I would be remiss to talk about reparations and not plug the work that BYP 100, it's Black Youth Project 100, is doing and has been doing. Um, The reparations conversation is not a new one. It might be newly popular um, or newly, I guess, like it's becoming more widely known. Um, But if you check out BYP 100's work and some of the policy papers that they have put out um there's a lot of suggestions about how we go about doing that Mm -hmm. um the last thing i'll say on that because i know we want to switch to talking about healing focus yoga how that is different to all the things we've talked about um the last thing i'll say on that though before we move back to that is um i think how do i want to put this so you, you said something about how like that would be reparations would be incredibly difficult because it would require white people to get uncomfortable and give something yes, up. Yes. I think that my very short, simple, but not easy answer to like, how does white supremacy come crashing down is that white people give up power. Yeah. I say simple and not easy because it's exactly that. Yeah. It is exactly that straightforward and it's exactly that difficult to make that happen. So I'll just leave that there. Oh, and then yes. Thank you for reminding me, Claire. Um, There was one thing, so we were talking a little bit about discussion questions um, that we've used in our class, um, and I'm definitely happy to share some of those with y'all. I also need to plug, there's an amazing educator named Leila Saad, who is doing a ton of anti-racism work online, um, specifically through Instagram. She created an amazing free toolkit called Me and White Supremacy. You can find it, um, and it is, I think a really powerful tool for a lot of people. It's been downloaded like hundreds of thousands of times, but she is really good at helping lead people through kind of peeling back some layers of things that they thought they understood about themselves, about the way that the world works. And yeah, just cannot plug that enough. It's not um, the end of the work surely, but it's a good place to get started, especially talking to people who are like, well, I'm one of the white folks that gets it. Like, this is your workbook because she's going to peel that back for you right away. Yeah. And then the real work happens when you start to reject exceptionalism because that's when there can be movement. Yeah. And, um, on that, you gave me some, a really great idea the other day on how as a white person to try to call in other white folks who maybe have some exceptionalism or have some room to grow and a very gentle way of giving feedback is to be like, Hey, do you want to be my accountability partner to go through this workbook together? Mm -hmm. So if you are interested in doing this work and you have some friends who you want to help guide you along, help guide along that path, check out that workbook it's free it's amazing you can go through it together and it can lead to some really productive discussions and hopefully open people up to how important feedback is Mm -hmm. and taking that feedback and turning it into meaningful action yes yes so thanks for that yes um and now i would love i know we're like there's so many other things we could talk about but i want to definitely make sure that we hit on the point that claire and i talk about all of the time um that yoga spaces can be very healing and they are not inherently healing. Yes. Um, they can actually be quite harmful. Um, we can have a whole session on, uh, spiritual bypassing, um, how spaces use that as a way to, uh, manipulate, coerce, shame other people, and especially shame. 
if a space is making you feel like there's something wrong with you as a person, like you are not good enough, if you only do yoga this other way or you take this other workshop, um, then maybe you'll be good enough. Watch out for that. That's a great red flag. Yeah, maybe um, you're, you're not you're not vegan enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or often you're not thin white cis yes. woman enough. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's like, oh my goodness, I had bacon this morning, and they're gonna they're gonna smell <laughs> it on me. Yeah, they'll sense it. Uh, and uh, full disclosure, I am vegan, but like, <laughs> it's real. <laughs> um, so yeah, so um, I think maybe we can talk a little bit more about how healing focus yoga tries to maybe shift some of the um, risks that consumerist yoga spaces have in terms of being mm-hmm. a little more harmful than healing. And if I could start us off, one I think that's really primary that I've noticed a lot recently is telling people what their healing should look like. And not just Mm -hmm. people, specifically survivors, Mm -hmm. saying this is what will be your medicine. I even saw a workshop recently called Trauma is Medicine. And sure, it's a spiritual practice of learning from suffering, but no one gets to tell you what your healing is supposed to look like for you to be good enough. Or how you experience your trauma. Yes, absolutely. Some traumas are for surviving, not learning from. And that's okay, you know? Um, so for me, that's one that really stands out is knowing that in a healing focus yoga class, we're really going to offer people different options of relating to themselves in the moment. And we're never going to say something like, uh, this type of meditation is going to cure your depression or, right. uh, or even just change your mood. Mm-hmm. We're doing a lot of normalizing and saying like, you know, if you want to give this a try, just explore what it might feel like, or imagine what it might feel like to feel more relaxed in this moment, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. Um, and you touched a little bit on spiritual bypassing. So I just wanted to circle back to that just mm. in case folks aren't sure what we mean by that. Thank you. Um, yeah, sure. So I think that this comes up a lot of the time, not exclusively, but this comes up a lot of the time when someone is expressing a need that is different than what they're getting in the space. So yeah. like, hey, I've noticed that you don't really have any black yoga teachers at your studio. What's going on with that? And the response is like, well, it's okay because we're all one perfect example of spiritual bypassing. Like I don't actually need to engage with the issue because we're all one human. We're all the same. And there's, and that's not to like make light of very real spiritual teachings that come from the actual practice of yoga from the people and culture that created yoga. Um, but I think what happens a lot of the time is, especially in the context of America, where it's become a very white, um, capitalized space, you have those teachings being co-opted to mean we don't have any problems here, we are all one. Mm. So that's one example. It sounds very close to I don't see color. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's one example. Um, so in addition to what Claire and I have talked a little bit about in terms of making sure that we are understanding what people might be entering the room with, a lot of what we're trying to do is give people really clear choices within their practice. So one of the, uh, that looks like a lot of different things. Um, one of them is I never start a class without telling people I'm going to offer some suggested poses, but this is a chance to check in with your body. So please move it differently if you feel called to. And that might be like, today I need to lay on the mat and take a nap. 
that might mean actually I, I really can't be in this space. I don't feel comfortable being present with myself. I'm going to go. But anytime I look up and people are moving their body differently, um, feels like a win because it yes. means that people have really checked in with what do I feel like and how do I respond to that, which is the entire point and can be very empowering, especially for people who have had their agency taken away in, in trauma. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And systemically in our society. Um, something I think too, is that maybe, uh, even some yoga teachers who are picking up on things like that will say something like that at the beginning as kind of a disclaimer, but not really have that way of relating to the class throughout the whole rest of the class experience. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, I think we have to recognize the power differential that is there Mm -hmm. and how, um, difficult it can be to go against that power differential uh, especially if you are someone who, because of different identities you might have, you know, like BIPOC folks, transgender, non-Kamahorian folks, uh, have gotten a lot of message and possibly internalized those messages that our body is not ours to decide what we want to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so recognizing and healing focus yoga, I say as many times as I can, mm-hmm. just reminding folks throughout, like, hey, check in. You get to decide what you want to do right now. And you can't remind people of that enough. Um, and... Uh, and like telling folks that they have permission to remind themselves of that too is mm-hmm. really good as ways like shifting that autonomy over. Yeah. yeah, totally. Okay. Yeah, that's incredible. That's very very powerful. I, when you were talking, I was just thinking about how many times that I've been doing yoga, and because I have restrictions with my shoulder, I have physical limitations, and how frustrating that is. Mm-hmm. And then thinking about the psychological and energetic and spiritual limitations one could have in those scenarios that just will not allow them mm-hmm. to do what they're being asked to do, mm-hmm. and how you know, even like I said, with my shoulder and those physical limitations, I get so frustrated that I just want to quit and never come back. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I can imagine that having the psychological limitations could make someone flee and never return. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're just about out of time. I think, I feel like we need almost got through the yoga stuff. Yeah. 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 Like we probably have like maybe about two minutes. Yeah. Do you want to pick another principle to talk about? Um, sure. Yeah. So um what Sarah's referring to is we have uh, a list of in healing focus yoga, we developed a series of principles which are kind of like our guiding framework. Maybe it would be good in this for the last thing to just kind of review what those are. Um, so the first one is, and so these are kind of thinking as the experience we are trying to offer folks Mm -hmm. in a class. So, uh, these are connection and that could be connection to themselves, to their breath, to their body, um, as well as possibly in different settings. You know, when I go, I am the person who is entering a community who already has established connections. Like when I go teach at Eden house, for example, which is a home for sex trafficking survivors. Um, so, uh, also maybe facilitating the conditions for people to feel more open to the folks around them when they're at that place in their healing. Uh, and then we also have empowerment is another principle. So really like we've talked about shifting power, uh, safety, it's emotional safety, physical safety, um, presence. So cultivating that ability to be in the moment. Uh, and then the last one is accountability, just because so much of this process is listening and holding yourself accountable to, uh, be open to feedback, to meet yourself where you're at. Um, 
And then in addition to those principles, we have what we call healing focus yoga skills, which are kind of like the how you do those things. So if those are the, the principles are kind of like what we want to offer. The skills are here's some ways to do that. Mm-hmm. And so for facilitators, the first one we've already mentioned is honoring choices. Um, next is setting clear expectations. And this can look like so many things. It can look like just saying how long the class is going to be. So imagine... Or we're going to be on the mat for a while today. Yeah, because in in yoga for recovery, like we're talking about, the challenge isn't that I'm going to ask you to do like a handstand. The challenge is that I'm going to offer you opportunities to be with yourself. Mm -hmm. And that can be really hard. Mm -hmm. And so setting the expectation for how long class can be, which can seem like a very simple thing, is actually going to make someone feel safe. Because mm-hmm. they know, okay, I can expect to be with myself for this much. Uh, and I'm going to go quickly through the other ones. Um, the next one is mindfulness, uh, which I could talk forever about my dissertations on that. So if you're interested, it's get, get at me. Um, the, other one, yeah. the other one is uh, being genuine. So really uh, making sure that your actions and your words are lining up as a yoga teacher, especially your tone. Mm -hmm. Survivors know to pick up on tone, you know? It's a survival skill to tell when someone is not being genuine Exactly. Yeah. Uh, And the last two are boundaries and collaboration, which also we could talk about more, but. Yes. Do we want to do a really quick, like 30 second plug on where to find us for classes? Okay. Um, hi y'all. This is Sarah. If you are a black and brown person that wants to try yoga, I teach free classes every Saturday at 10 30 and 12, um, at the breed love yoga studio in mid city. Um, you can go to blackassyogaclass.blogspot.com best url ever um and then also another graduate of our program uh misha is also at breed love yoga every friday at six offering a class for lgbtq plus survivors uh i went last week it's wonderful um and then also i am thinking about offering a training if you're a yoga teacher and you want to learn more about this stuff and other ways to support your students through mental health issues given this the skill set that you have right now, uh, check in with me. I might be offering that 